Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Dr. James Hester, who is a uh, he, well, he worked at the Royal Army's Museum for five years, ending up as a curator there. So he's got to handle lots of the seriously good old weapons. Um, he has a PhD in late medieval armored combat, and that's actually how we met. He contacted me about doing edge on edge sharp weapons. Um, contact and having a look at the sort of damage that different kinds of strikes and different kind of edges would create against each other. Um, and he runs a Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash school of Mars, M A R S, uh, where he basically gives you access to his extraordinary breadth and depth of knowledge, particularly about things medieval. So without further ado, James, welcome to the show. Hey, good to ha good to be here, Guy. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's nice to see you again. Oh, I forgot to mention that it was James and I who took the photographs of the treatises at the fencing museum in the UK a couple of years ago, and those pictures are up online. I'll put links in the show notes. So we have like twenty odd um, historical treatises which James helped me photograph. So we've we've worked together in the past before. Yeah, and if you see if you see the odd thumb in the corner of those photos, you're welcome. That was all me. <laughs> um, okay, so why don't, why don't we kick off by just orienting everybody? Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, at the moment, I'm in uh, Ascot, uh, which is about an hour and a bit uh, west of London, basically between London and Reading. Okay, um, that's not where you come from, though, right? No, no, I, I'm a repentant colonial. Uh, I was <laughs> born uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, uh, and I came over here uh, at first in 2005 uh, to do a master's degree up in up in York, uh, and after that was when I started working for the Armories. Uh, spent a bit of time then back in the U.S. and then came back over here in 2015 to do the PhD, and I've uh, been here ever since. I haven't been able to get rid of me. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So um, how did you get into this whole sword thing? <sighs> um, well, depends how far back you want to go. Um, I mean, I think I blame my general interest in all of this uh, on the fact that as far back as I can remember, my mum would read kind of fantasy sword and sorcery stuff to me. So oh, wow. that certainly kind of planted the seed. Um, but I first actually started swinging swords around, um, not in a, a historical combat context, but actually in a stage combat context. Um, I started off doing fight shows, uh, along, uh, around several of the, uh, Renaissance fairs around New England. Um, and so this was in the mid to late nineties into the early aughts. Uh, and it was around this time in the course of doing that, uh, that I started meeting some of the kind of movers and shakers in that area in the, in the kind of early days of historical combat research. Cause you know, a lot of this was 
pre-internet where, you know, people only kind of found out that other people were interested in this stuff by word of mouth. Uh, and so hung out, gradually met some of the people that were looking into the more historical side of all this and learning that there were these texts that had survived that actually provided teachings on, on what medieval combat was like. And the people were actually taking a crack at trying to interpret these and try to, as best as we can, recreate the techniques in it. And so even though I still keep one foot in the stage combat world and I've done the odd bit of fight choreography in here, uh, you know, ever since. I gradually jumped ship into the more historical side of things uh, and changed from being a theater major to being history major and kind of slanted my focus more on that. Uh, and that's how I found my way into the museums. That's what brought me to to the UK, to York, and then eventually up to, to the armories. Uh, and it's been, and the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Quite. Um, now, I know that uh, many of my listeners will, will strangle me if I don't ask you this, but how do you actually go about getting a job as a curator of arms and armor at somewhere like the Royal Armouries, which has like the best collection of swords in the world? Pure stubbornness. Uh, okay. I, I basically, uh, I, I'd, I'd set my sights on, on leads very early on, um, and I can pin it to... Again, in the mid-90s, I saw a History Channel documentary about the sword. This was like a series that the armories had put out uh, way back when. Um, and they had a little vignette where they, uh, I think the leads had only just been opened. Uh, and it was talking about here, the, you know, the Royal Armory set up this new museum in Leeds, and they have a whole department of interpreters whose job it is to basically be professional reenactors and to display combat techniques and all this stuff. Uh, and I'm sitting there in, in Massachusetts going, you mean people do that for a job? I want to do that. <laughs> uh, and I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that was part of my motivation for wanting to do my master's at York. Uh, not just because it was a fantastic medieval studies program, but also it was right down the road from Leeds. And I thought it was like, this is my chance to try to, you know, break into this, uh, to this place and see if I can actually do this. So I, 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 as soon as I arrive for my, uh, for my master's, I reach out to some of the interpreters there, end up meeting up with them and, and basically just make it very clear to them that I wanted to, to do that. Yeah. Um, and so I just kind of spent as much time hanging out with them as possible. There weren't any gigs up, but, uh, I ended up interning with the interpreters for about six months where they basically said, come hang out with us. We'll, you know, we'll call it an internship. We'll train you up. We'll get to know you. You'll get to know us. And if a gig comes up in the meantime, you know, you're, you're already here. So you'll have a good chance for it. Yeah. So I did that, but sadly nothing came up. Uh, but I was still determined just not to go away until something happened. And uh, they were hiring for the, uh, the gallery staff, people that patrol the galleries and yell at people for touching things and that sort of stuff. Um, so I just said, well, okay, at least it keeps me here. It's, you know, there are far worse gigs to have than being able to wander around, uh, you know, a museum like this all day. Yeah. Uh, so I did that for two years. And again, just kind of bided my time, waited to see if anything came up. Sadly, nothing came up in the in the interpreters. But in the meantime, I'd finished my master's, uh, I'd racked up a little bit more experience with kind of in-depth arms and armor study, both through the master's and just my own study. And then an, an opportunity came up for a researcher post in the curatorial department. So it oh, wasn't wow. where I had envisioned 
going in terms of direction. But I was like, ooh, that could still be cool. So I put in for that. And lo and behold, I got it. Uh, and that's how I started in the curatorial department. And it just gradually rose through the ranks uh, until my my last position there was as their curator of collections, uh, not at Leeds, but down at the Tower of London, which was an amazing way to spend a, that, a, a year. That just that sounds like absolute shit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Miserable. The actual Tower of London. The actual where, Tower of London. Right. Okay. And, and I'm guessing quite a few of the listeners might not know this, but originally the Royal Armies had their whole collection in the Tower of London. And then in the 90s, they built this great big museum in Leeds and moved everything like five hours north. Um, so there's a smaller, smaller collection in um, the Tower and the main collection is up in Leeds. Yeah, uh, that's I'm right. getting that uh, right, aren't I? That's right. Yeah. The, I mean, basically yeah. the, the, the collection was outgrowing the tower uh, and surprise, surprise, you can't knock down walls in a thousand year old historic site. So they realized that they had to expand onto new, uh, new sites. They couldn't expand on their current site. So um, yeah, the, the, the kind of the main portion of the collection went up to Leeds, which is essentially the mothership. Now uh, the tower, they still maintain a presence in, and it has, some of the more kind of iconic pieces in the collection, a lot of the Royal Armors are based down there. Um, and the bits of the collection that are specifically relevant to the Armory's connection with the tower are down there. Cause, um, essentially the, the, the Royal Armories is kind of the descendant of, uh, Henry VIII's Greenwich Armory that he founded. And then later on the board of ordnance. Uh, you know, basically the the arsenal for the the British yeah. military. Uh, so you know they still they still kind of maintain that story there. Um, and then there's a third site further down south at Fort Nelson in Portsmouth, which is where all the artillery and the big guns live. So uh, but yeah, that was in the 90s where they kind of split the collection up just to make sure that uh, that each bit could be done justice rather than trying to cram it all in the tower. Yeah, which was I mean it was state of the art when it was built in about mm. 1070. But it's been. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were referring to to the site up in Leeds there for a second. I was like, well, well, that, yeah, yeah. That, well that, that, that was state of the art when it was built in the nineties. I remember, and I remember my first yeah, visit. Yeah. I was living in Edinburgh at the time, and we drove down to it, and it was just, just overwhelming. Just the Tower of Steel. It's a very that, cool that place. In, yeah, there's this enormous sort of, well, well it's a tower, I guess. It's, it's like a cylinder, and mm-hmm. it's got swords all the way up the walls. The Hall of Steel. Right. I actually did this, and then I was told not to. I I, I lay on my back and just looked up. (laughs) Yeah, just hundreds and hundreds of swords. It's quite spectacular. sword heaven. So so you lived in sword heaven for a long time. Um, I I, uh, I did. It was uh, was unforgettable. Why did you stop? Um, Unfortunately, not by choice. Um, Ah, Okay. I, I mean, I... I don't want to alienate uh, listeners by getting into politics, but suffice to say that I fell on the sharp end of the shift in visa policy in 2010-11 and was left uh, without the ability to, uh, to to stay under my current status. Right. So unfortunately, I be I went into exile back in the States for, for a few years right. in a way of being able to stick around. Okay. So when the opportunity for the PhD came, uh, it was a, my triumphal re-entry back into uh, right. back into the my back into what for me is is home. 
So, so in other words, lack of the UK equivalent of a green card cost you a job at the Royal Armouries? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I, they, they how, how did you not set fire to Number 10 Downing Street? I mean, uh, the, just, a, a saintly degree of patience. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was deeply frustrating because, I mean, the, frankly, the gig at the Tower, I would have happily retired from that. Yeah. Um, and so it was absolutely soul-crushing to... To, to, to have to, to, you know, to myself step down from that yeah. post and leave. Um, and so during the, during my time back stateside, I tried to kind of keep up with as much research and things, uh, on my own. Uh, one interesting bit of, uh, unexpected mischief came of that is I just happened to be back in, um, like my, the hometown where I grew up in is Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, just outside of Boston, which coincidentally is where the sadly, uh, closed down Higgins Armory collection was. Uh, and that's, that's where I get the bug for, for arms and armor. It was my first museum gig was there. And I just happened to have been landed back there just as Jeffrey Forgang was doing his new edition of 133. So I was literally a five minute walk from, from the armory, from his office. So he pulled me in to kind of co-write the introduction to that for him. So it just happened that I was in his backyard to do that. So I was able to keep up with right. a little bit of kind of things on my own steam. Uh, but I was, unfortunately, I was kind of preparing myself for being a perpetual independent scholar on arms and armor because I couldn't imagine a way back. And then lo and behold, the PhD scholarship comes up and um, plugs me back into the game. So uh, it was how, it was okay, blessed PhD fortune. Scholarship. What, what yeah. Um, so essentially, in 2015, uh, to commemorate the 600th anniversary of Agincourt, uh, the University of Southampton, and uh, more specifically, the person who was to become my supervisor, Professor Anne Curry. Um, that name might ring a bell for people if you've ever pulled a book off a shelf about the Hundred Years' War or the Battle of Agincourt, chances are she has had something to do with it. She's something of a rock star within that chunk of, of medieval scholarship. Um, so she paired up with the Arms and Armor Heritage Trust to offer a PhD scholarship for anything relevant to medieval military stuff. Um, so I just happened to see the advert from this uh, in Boston and just decided, you know, fortune favors the bold. I threw an application in, um, and then lo and behold, uh, I, I I got it, and that's what uh, allowed me to come back here. It was a very very generous scholarship and included a very generous travel uh, budget, which is what allowed me to basically spend three years swanning around some of the the great collections of of Europe, uh, looking at some of these original pieces of, of arms and armor for my, my research. Um, it was fantastic. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's been, it's been quite a, a ride, uh, these last handful of years of like ups and downs in this, but so far it seems like touch wood, everything seems to have worked out in the end. Sure. And, and part of that research was, um, the thing about edge damage, um, yeah, that's what right. brought you to me. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, it's essentially, it was an idea that had kind of been in the back of my head since the days up in Leeds, where, um, how to put it, in the course of examining objects, 
I'd noticed the odd kind of ding and notch and things in the blades, but I was very surprised that nobody had actually made a really kind of in-depth serious study of this, of saying, let's document this stuff and see what, if anything, we can tell from, from, from this damage. Um, and so I kind of slotted in the back of my head and said, oh, maybe you should do some research in this. I talked to some of the other curators up there, and they said, oh, yeah, that'd be a cool thing to maybe build a mini exhibit about at some point. And it just got mothballed because we got distracted with other things. So when the when the, the advert for the scholarship came up and they were looking for topics, I said, that'd be an interesting one to dust off and say, like, I can finally revisit that and propose uh, actually getting around to doing this research finally. Um, and that was probably the area that they found most intriguing about it. Um, just as just as an aside, the, like the whole uh, bit of research, it was very much this kind of sprawling, multi-tentacle thing where the, the, the damage on arms and armor was one side that I was looking at. So examining, documenting all these nicks and dings and scratches to kind of see if we can pick out uh, what, if anything, they can tell us about how, the, how these objects were used. Then I was comparing that information to depictions of combat in medieval artwork uh, of all different types. Uh, I was also digging into the skeletal remains, uh, particularly some of the big battlefield skeletal uh, finds like Towton and Visby. So um, again, just as, just as an aside to talk about what the whole uh, thesis covered, the, 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 the damage side was only one aspect. So I was looking at these instances of notches and dings and scratches on, on blades and on pieces of armor to get a sense of what, if anything, they can tell us about how these objects may have been used. Then I was comparing that information to uh, combat depictions in medieval artwork of all different types. Uh, then I was taking that information and comparing it to the data we have from some of the big skeletal remain finds that we've had, particularly the big battlefield mass graves like Towton and Visby. Um, and then... I was essentially looking to answer three questions with all of this information. One, taking all those sources and holding them up next to one another, do we see any consistency? Do they tell a consistent story about combat? Uh, two, uh, how does all of that information compare to what we're seeing portrayed and taught in the, the fencing treatises? Because in theory, the fencing treatises are the only supposedly authoritative texts, uh, sources we have about medieval combat. They're the only sources that actually set out to, to, to spell out what combat techniques were actually like, at least in theory. Uh, so how does, how does all the other source material compare to what's going on in the treatises? And then finally, using all of this information together, is there anything in the fencing treatises, any techniques or any principles that using all the other evidence I can point to those techniques and saying I can make a pretty solid argument using this evidence that that technique or at least something like it was fairly widely used or appreciated at the time. So trying to piece out, um, you know, are there any techniques that we're absolutely sure weren't just kind of intellectual explorations on uh, of these fencing masters that showed up in the manuals, but may have actually been really used? Um, and without wanting to give anything away, because I'm in talks currently with getting it published, 
Um, okay. The, the the general answer to all those questions was a resounding yes. Um, wow. So there was there was a remarkable amount of consistency amongst the sources. They matched up in more ways than they didn't, which was really cool to see. Um, a fair bit did map on quite nicely to the you know the techniques in the fencing treatises. Uh, you know, there's plenty of anomalies where they diverge, but that was to be expected. But there's quite a lot that did match up, and there was a satisfying amount of stuff that uh, in, in terms of techniques and principles that I could say, I've got some fairly robust evidence here to show that something like this was actually used uh, enough across these ra- this random assortment of evidence that I've gathered to say, yeah, something like this was probably pretty widely appreciated and practiced. So maybe it wasn't a kind of super esoteric teaching that only people that read these these treatises were practicing, that it was something that was pretty widely understood. Wow. Okay. Uh, is there any way I can persuade you to send over a, PhD, uh, a PDF of your PhD thesis for me to put in the show notes so that people can go and read it? Well, um, at the moment, the moment the thesis itself is under embargo because of the publication talks. But what oh, okay. I did do, because I essentially promised a lot of people that they'd get access to this as quickly as possible. But sure. uh, unfortunately, the publication process has been glacial. So it's been a lot slower than I that I had anticipated. So what I did to kind of keep people tied it over and eh, I'd be lying if it also didn't kind of whet their appetites a little bit. I, I wrote a kind of a big, long uh, kind of summary doc uh, just saying, here's the sorts of things that I went into. Here are the methods that I did. Here are the areas that I'd explored. Um, so, you know, when the thing gets released, you'll see what the actual findings are. So I can send you that and you can post it and it give, it'll give people Lovely. good ideas to like what was covered in it and some of the areas that I uh, looked into and what they can expect when it comes out. Cool. And, and of course, when the book does come out, you'll come back on the show and tell everybody about it and it's not embargoed and then everybody can go and buy the book. I would be absolutely delighted. Brilliant. Okay. We have a plan. All right. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's super hard having you know, having found out some cool and interesting stuff and then having to sit on it, waiting for a bunch of people who are not sword people to get their act together so you can actually spread it. It's I, rather I've, agonizing. Uh, and the worst part is I've got, uh, I've got this backlog of other research that I want to do that I really can't do until that stuff is out in the wild because a lot of it is building on that. So if right. I get around to, so it's, you know, it's, so it's kind of, like, you know, the, the the thesis itself focused on the late Middle Ages. So I kind of bookended it roughly mumble-mumble 1350 to 1500. Um, okay. But I included the stuff from 133 because it's one of our very few 14th century sources. Um, so one of the things that I really want to do uh, for the next big project is actually go backwards. Uh, because... Uh, one of the things, and you know, I can I can talk about this without giving away any spoilers, but one of the main things that I that I that I managed to do in the thesis was to prove that the method that I was employing was a valid one. That you can uh, okay. take this kind of hard data based approach of I'm just going to gather as much information as I can. I'm going to analyze it in all these different ways and see what it tells us 
um, and what kind of picture it can paint. So like part of the thesis proved that that was actually a valid way of, of going about this. So now that we have this method and we've proven that it can work because it did work with the late medieval material, I want to take the same approach and apply it to the earlier periods that we don't have um, fencing treatises for. Ah. Uh, but we do have all of these other sources. We have artwork. We have surviving objects. We have some skeletal remains with, oh. uh, with, with injuries on them. So it's, like, it's almost like an algebraic equation. So it's like I had all parts of the puzzle with the late medieval stuff. So now let's take that same principle, go to where, where X is missing, but we have everything else, and then we can just apply the same method and solve for X. Exactly. So you could basically produce a credible idea of what those fencing treatises would have looked like if they had been written or survived. Or at the very least, what sort of material would have been covered. Uh, and I think what's, what intrigues me the most about that is uh, one of the things that I was hoping to, to, to show with the late medieval material is to see if there was a perceptible shift in technique from the earlier part of the 14th century through the 15th, because in theory, that's the time where you start to see the gradual uh, kind of advent of, of full plate armor come onto the scene. Uh, and we know that some of the weapons adjust to accommodate for, for that change. You know, you start getting the swords with much more fine points, so you have much more thrusting capability. So I wanted to see if you could spot that shift in the material. Um, and one of the weird things was, um, and I, I don't feel bad about saying this because, uh, again, it's not a massive spoiler. In the whole 150-year period that I looked at, I did not see any perceptible shift in technique. Wow. Now, that was really wow. interesting because what that tells us is that, what that suggests is that that transition had already well and truly settled in by then. Um, so that all the more intrigues me to, to go to the earlier stuff because I want to see if I can actually find the shift. And if I yeah. go and I do an equivalent, if I do an equivalent project for say, you know, 1100 to 1350, I'm definitely going to see the, you would hope, see that kind of pattern yeah. shift, uh, in the objects, in the, you know, in the artwork, even the injury patterns and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you know this so, reminds me of. When I was doing English language at university years and years and years ago, as uh, we were taught about the great vowel shift, which is when oh, English yes. was starting to be pronounced differently. It's like you've you've come across the great swordsmanship shift of the I don't know 13th century or whatever, and it's going to have capital letters, you know, great shift, and <laughs> and it's as it also it's a sort of thing which I imagine listeners to this show particularly and people people like you and me. Um, you know, sword nerds to the nth degree mm -hmm. are just, it's, it's, it's just unspeakably exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, and yet to the overwhelming majority of the human population, they really couldn't give a toss. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so I yeah, suppose yeah. in a way it's, it's good that, I mean, it's, it's not nothing that the research that I did at least proved that that shift didn't happen within that window of time. But now I want to actually go backwards and see if I can actually find when it happened. But first, I've got to get this bloody book out so that I can go back and not be kind of giving away spoilers in something that I get out yeah. of time. On my online courses, we have this uh, Discord server for the students. And one of them was one of the students 
on the server was talking about um, English longsword sources and actually uh, referred to your 2009 paper, Real Men Read Poetry, and ah, yes. literally like sort of quoted from it and and you know, properly um, credited it in in his in his um, thing. And I was like, that's James's paper. I'm talking to James next week. So I, yeah, so, so when, when this student, I I saw this, this thread and I was like, so I, I I sent a message saying, would you like me to ask James himself what he thinks of this? (laughs) And, and it was like, oh, you can do that. I was like, well, I can certainly try. So, (laughs) so you have this paper, Real Memory Poetry, Instructional Verse in 14th Century Fight Manuals. Mm And uh, my student was curious as to to what degree do you think it's actually possible to extract a historical fencing system from those texts the the english ones yeah so this was the 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 english uh fencing treatises uh were the topic of my master's thesis or at least one of them was the, and that's the the Harley text, uh, Harley three five four two. Um, like for the, for those who don't know, there are there are three Middle English fencing texts uh, that are that date to prior to uh, the turn of the sixteenth century. Uh, by stroke of luck, they're all in the British Library. They're all very very short, uh, and what's most intriguing about them is that despite the fact that they're the datings, they're fairly well spread throughout the late medieval period. Uh, there's a lot of debate about the datings. Uh, I put the Harley text slightly earlier than a lot of people do, uh, just judging by the the, the, the handwriting. Um, but they, they pretty much span about, I would say, a 100-year period, roughly. Um, so despite that, they all share a common vocabulary. Uh, some of these Middle English terms for different techniques, they all use many of the same terms, which is quite intriguing because it suggests, ooh, is this, you know, possibly evidence for uh, some kind of quote-unquote English school of thought on all of this? Um, I was thinking system. Sis- yes, like exactly, system. system. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's a much better way to put it. Um, so I, I dove into the Harley text for my master's, um, I attempted, well, I did a transcription of it, a modern English kind of translation of it, and attempted to do what at the time I considered to be the, you know, a, a, a very, very speculative interpretation of the techniques. One that looking back now, I consider to be the folly of youth that I in no way stand behind at all. But I was just, you know, I was, uh, I was just looking to try to, you know, go as far as I could with the, with the master's uh, dissertation. Um, the short answer is, I and this is a personal opinion because I know that there's quite a lot of uh, there's quite a handful of of practitioners and schools that have built up uh, a, a recreated system out of these texts. Personally, I'm not entirely sure that you can recreate uh, a comprehensive system out of those texts. And I think the main reason is because although all three of those texts, the Harley, the the other two, uh, one's called the Additional 
uh, and the other is called the cotton. Um, while they all share the same uh, common vocabulary, they do next to nothing to contextualize that vocabulary. Uh, because some of these terms show up nowhere else in the entire corpus of Middle English that we know of. So it'll say things like, uh, step forward with your right foot and strike a dragon's tail. But then nowhere in the manuscript does it tell you what a dragon's tail is. Right. Uh, it doesn't go into any detail. So um, again, far be it for me to throw stones at other uh at other scholar practitioners who have built interpretations around this system. But I frequently come across people who post videos of the, of their interpretations of these sequences and they're very sensible, you know, beautiful, effective sequences with a sword. But I sit there going, how on earth did you pull that out of that little chunk of middle English? Um, and I mean, I've, I've unfortunately, I've never gotten the chance to hang out with any of these guys and actually pick their brains about it because I'm, I'm not even saying that necessarily as a critique. I'm genuinely curious because if they've stumbled across something that I didn't, then I'd love to find out about it because at the time, the last time I really had any dealings with, with those texts, my conclusion was more or less, they're really fascinating. They tell us that there was some kind of a consistent martial arts scene in England at this time. Um, but unfortunately, until some other sources come up, which could maybe shed some light on what these terms mean, there's not a whole lot we can do with them. Um, that, and that that's kind of where I've been, my, where I left it. Yeah, that, that, that was sort of my feeling when I came across them many years yeah. ago. It's like, this is, a, this is really, really interesting, but without a Rosetta Stone sort of exactly. to, to explain what all these things actually are. Yep. Um, the, I mean, the, the person that I know, uh, I, I came across a guy while I was at the tower who was doing a, um, he was doing a PhD uh, in Canada, a chap called Mark Geldof. Um, and he, I think, made the biggest dent uh, in, in trying to crack that uh, than anyone else I'd come across. Um, and he was looking at the, the cotton uh, text which is quite ambitious because out of all of them, it's the shortest. It's literally a single folio of maybe something like a couple, like maybe a dozen lines. So it's tiny, tiny, tiny piece of text. Um, but he made a pretty solid case in his thesis showing parallels between some of the terms uh, used for the footwork with Middle English dance manuals from the same period. Showing, okay, uh, okay, there's a there's a common vocabulary here, or at least if it's not exact, it's it's close if you squint, where there's you know, you could see those parallels. Um and he made some really interesting breakthroughs in his thesis. And I think his thesis is available online. So if you look up his name, you can find it. Um so I think he was one of those ones that kind of like got as far as I think anybody that I'd come across had managed to at that time. But even that was ten years ago. So Again, I haven't really done a whole lot of work on those treatises since. So it's not impossible that that some of the people that are doing more in-depth work with it have come across more enlightening sources that they're using to kind of build their interpretations around. But I've just not become aware of them. If, if, if anyone has them, uh, has any light to shed on this, I'd love to know. 
because I, I do find myself somewhat perplexed by by some of the systems that have cropped up around these uh, these texts. Okay, that's very diplomatically put. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and you know, I, I have I have friends and colleagues who I respect deeply who have what they consider to be a working interpretation of these texts, and my view is that they have a working fencing system that uses the terminology from the texts, but they have no way of establishing by academic argument that that is what the text actually intends. It's not like theory where you have a picture of the person in guard, you have a picture of the swords coming together, you have a picture of what happens immediately afterwards, and you have detailed instruction of exactly what to do, like, you know, step with your left foot and strike like this to the arms. I mean... Exactly. Where, and I mean, where, I... Yeah, okay, we still have to interpret, but we have an awful lot of data to base that interpretation on and you can you can make a, a clear academic argument that this is what Fiori meant at this point. Exactly. Much harder to do that with the English stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean and I that's really that's kind of the approach that I take with historical combat in, in general. Like I'm I'm very, very wary of of anybody that comes forward and says, I have recreated the system of X master or X treatise, because until a little blue box shows up, uh, it allows you to go back and, and, and double check. We're never going to know for certain. Like I, I've, I've always taken, you know, it's, it's perhaps a bit more wishy-washy and it's not as sexy sounding and definitive, but I've always taken the approach of, look, if we're being totally honest, the best we can do is is create systems of combat that will only ever be modern because we'll never be able to fully verify it, but that we draw from these texts what insights we're capable of through through our interpretations of them. So it's like I, you know, when I when I've uh, taught students, I never say I'm teaching you. I never even go as far as saying I'm teaching you medieval combat much less right. I'm teaching okay. you Fiore or I'm teaching you, you know, something from the Lichtenhauer tradition or anything like that. I say, I'm teaching you a, a system of sword combat drawn from these historical texts because okay. I, I, very... I, because I, because I acknowledge that there's quite a lot of uh, kind of input from my own kind of more modern experience that I'm bringing to it. Um, and again, that's, that's my own kind of personal take on it. Uh, it's not, it's not as exciting as, uh, as, as, as some would, would prefer, but it keeps me honest. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and my, my view is that so long as you're honest about how much of it is drawn from the text and how much is, is added or, or sort of interpolated, then it's fine. It's like, you know, I, I wrote a whole book recently called From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice, which goes through the all of the Fury's longsword plays out of armor on foot. And I I provide a transcription, a translation, and my explanation of how I think it goes, including where necessary reference to other parts of the text. And you know, if if say Fury says, and this is like the third play of the first march of the dagger, then I go to the first play of the first third play of the first march of the dagger, and I transcribe and translate that and I put that in there. So so the thing is at the end of the day, None of that means that my interpretation is correct. It just means that anybody who is curious about my interpretation can look and see exactly why I think it is like this. 
Yeah, exactly. Right? And and that's, I, that's that's really all you can do. Yeah, exactly. I I remember the first uh, the first academic paper I ever presented at uh, Kalamazoo. This would have been in two thousand and seven. Um, it was like uh, as part of my introduction. This was also talking about the English uh, texts. Um, uh, as part of my introduction to it, this was back in the days where we had to preface every single talk about HEMA with, this is a new discipline and we're still getting our bearings on it and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. um, where, where one of the things that I said was, you know, anyone who approaches these texts needs to keep in mind a handful of things. And one of the final things that I said was, and, and finally, uh, in order to approach and interpret these texts, you have to have the totally honest uh, admission that at the end of the day, we're never going to know if we're 100% right. And that comment was met with rapturous applause and laughter from the from the kind of clutch of sword nerds that were in the, the crowd, because it was kind of like I'd spoken a great truth and finally said it out loud. <laughs> um, yeah. And there were a couple of people, there were a couple of people who were also in that same crowd that were not at all pleased with that with that comment. Um, but uh, for a lot of other people, they found it very, very refreshing. And it's just, I think we don't, I think it doesn't get said enough. Uh, it's like, look, you know, we've all got to step back and realize that short of the advent of time travel, we're, we're you know, we're grasping at straws. Some we've got a better grip on than others because of the robustness of the material, but ultimately we're guessing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, and as long, but as long as, as long as we're having fun with swords and no one's getting hurt, I mean, that's the, that's it. Good. That's the that's the most important part. I, I, speaking of having fun with swords, now I, I know that um, you conducted a deed of arms in France a while ago. Ah, uh, yes, yes, and and I and I I seem to recall um, I helped you discuss some of the safety aspects of it. Yeah, that's right. So, so, um, so would you like to like tell everybody what that was about and how it went and what sort of compromises you made with equipment and that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So uh, like I'll, I'll tell the full, uh, the, the yeah, full story for that. Yeah. So I had for, for years and years, I'd had it in the back of my head to actually stage a proper medieval deed of arms or passage of arms, uh, you know, with, with as much of the pageantry and everything as could be done. Um, partly just because it would be a good bit of fun, partly to actually, as a martial artist, to kind of put myself to the test and really uh, kind of, you know, push my limits and see what happened. Uh, so, you know, for many reasons, this has been in my head for years. And I'd initially uh, kind of floated the idea when I was down at the tower, wouldn't, the, wouldn't it be a great thing to stage a medieval deed of arms in the moat at the tower? Yes. Um, but uh, unfortunately, because the armories, even though the, the armories maintains a presence there, they're not the, the, the stewards of the tower. Uh, so the, the, the caretakers of the tower, which is historic royal palaces, who actually run the grounds, the diary of things booked to be done at the tower is like several years in advance. So uh, okay. at the time, I was basically told, this is a really cool idea, but it's not happening anytime soon. Um, so I it kind of shelved it, and when the when I started doing my PhD research, the first place that I visited to start examining bits of arms and armor 
was this uh, very, very small but impressive collection in an absolutely stunning medieval castle on the Dordogne in France, uh, in Aquitaine, called Chateau de Castelnau. And um, it's, uh, if, you've, if you've never seen it or if you've never been there, it is one of the most gorgeous places on the planet. It is, it's a time capsule. And the, the castle itself was a former Cathar stronghold. Uh, and, you know, it was uh, switched sides, I think, once or twice during the Hundred Years' War. Uh, and it's just this beautiful castle perched on this crag overlooking the Dordogne River. And they've got um, a rather. We'll put photo, hang on, we'll, we'll put photos in the show notes so people can. Excellent, find please it do. And, yeah. yeah, so yeah. so they were the first ones to answer my call, saying, you know, yes, by all means, come and poke our our weapons for your research. This sounds cool. Um, so I went down there and spent uh, about a week doing my examination and hanging out with the curators who were uh, who were very cool, and just as a completely offhanded comment one night while we were hanging out and talking, I said that I'd had this harebrained idea one day to stage a, a passage of arms with full medieval trappings and everything, but that despite my efforts to try to do it at the tower, didn't manifest, and that one day I hope to do it. And her ears pricked up, and she said, that would be a really intriguing thing to do here. Uh, would you be interested in doing it here? Because we'd be all over that. And you wow. know, I couldn't say yes quickly enough, because the you know as you'll see with the photos, the, the ambiance of doing this thing like that in a place like this was extraordinary. So it was a, it was only very early days of the PhD. So I knew it wasn't going to happen until the PhD was over just because there was so much else going on. But so when, in 2018, when I'd finished the thesis, um, this happened. So it was September of that year where uh, I, over the period of two days, ended up facing uh, a half dozen people in back-to-back combat. We were hoping to get more people, but uh, but didn't end up working out. But I ended up facing this amazing contingent of people from uh, a combination HEMA and historical reenactment group called uh, La Ménie du Blanc Castel, based out of Bordeaux, who uh, I put a challenge out a year before saying, I'm going to be here doing this, here are the rules, come up, you know, come and show me what you've got. And they took up the call and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll send some of our guys here and we'll put you through your paces. Um, and it was a truly extraordinary weekend. Um, so much so that we actually repeated it the following year. So, uh, same, uh, last, last year, last autumn, uh, we did it again with the same group that came around, uh, and, uh, both years it drew amazing crowds. The, the people at the Chateau loved it. We had a great time. There's some videos and stuff as well. Actually, Guy, I can send you a couple clips of things yeah, to include if you want send, as well. Send, send all the links, all the photos. All yeah, the yeah, videos, yeah. Happy to. All in the show notes and then everyone can just go there and find it because it just sounds perfect, awesome. Perfect. It was, it was amazing. So from the, from the kind of equipment and logistics standpoint, and this is what I was chatting with you, Guy, about, um, I wanted to... I wanted to keep the the ambiance uh, and thus the kit requirements as close to historically accurate as possible, because what I was taking for inspiration was not so much the standard kind of knightly passage of arms, you know, in full head to toe rattle, uh, and you know, partly on horseback and then some on foot and all that stuff. Partly because I didn't have full plate uh, and certainly not a horse. Um, but also I was taking the inspiration from 
that comment in Fiore's introduction about how on several times, you know, to, uh, my skill was tested by challengers wearing nothing but a, you know, but a, but a heavy jacket uh, and gloves. Uh, and so I, because from a living history standpoint, that's kind of how I tend to portray myself less of the kind of knightly cast and more of a kind of fencing master type impression. So that's what I've got the gear for and everything. That's what I'm more interested in. But obviously for safety reasons, doing it exactly the way Fiore described would be, let's say it would raise some hairs on some health and safety people to say the least. Fiore himself says it was incredibly dangerous. Indeed. Yeah. So we had to try to strike a balance. So what we ended up doing was um, heavy uh, heavy jackets, whether that was gambesons, arming doublets that were padded enough uh, for people's comforts, and then steel on your head, on your hands, and on your elbows. Because uh, uh, under the tournament rules, uh, the waist up was the only valid target area. Um, and so part of the reason that we decided on that kit was one, to maintain the historical accuracy of, you know, not having modern equipment uh, being visible in this amazing medieval atmosphere to kind of keep the ambiance of it. But also, I wanted to use the kit requirements to kind of weed out, to be blunt, the the wrong sort of fighter for this event. Um, Because really what I was looking for was some kind of mutation between uh, a HEMA tournament and a living history display. Um, because unfortunately, uh, our art has progressed to the point where although I'm over the moon that there's such a a massive community around the world and there's such a thriving tournament circuit where people can practice and pit themselves against others, it's kind of gone the way that things like that inevitably will do in some circles where it has become kind of sporterized. Yeah, sure. Um, that's, that's, not, so, that's not a bad thing, as long as you don't have. No, to do not it. at all. Exactly. It's like it's, it's but it's um, some people. Exactly, but uh, with that has come uh, for people that are very very active in that circuit. There's a tendency to kind of uh, skew their their training and their techniques for those types of events, and that wouldn't necessarily be engaging from a display point of view. So I wanted to make sure that the people that were fighting there were the right combination of capable fighters who would, you know, do a good display and also give me a run for my money, while at the same time uh, were sufficiently kind of interested and knowledgeable about the real historical side of things and able to do it in the spirit that would have been more in keeping with the period as well. Um, because this was kind of where I started with all of this, because back when I first was getting involved with this, there wasn't really a, a, a sharp divide between the living history people and the HEMA people. And it's really been more recently, um, like I was very surprised uh, over the years to see more and more people who have modern fencing gear for their practice, but don't have a scrap of medieval kit. Because that's not, right. for them, that's not the side of it they're interested in, which is fair enough, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, the, the, the merger of the two has always been more of an interest to me. So I wanted to find the, the, you know, people who had that similar interest and so could put on something that was engaging for the public in, keep, in as much a keeping as possible with the historical side of things 
and at the same time be a good fight. Um, and so the guys at Lemeni from Bordeaux were were the perfect match for that. Um, Excellent. And so I have a I mean, technical question. What did on. you do about eye protection? Oh, visors were down on our helmets at all times. So, but, but there were slits. Yeah, there were there was slits. So the um, our sword tips were. Uh, were flared and we did have some kind of stopper that was our one concession to modernity is to have stoppers at the uh, at the tips of our swords so like, like rubber like rubber blunts on the end of your yeah and we kept it and we kept okay. them as kind of muted as possible just so they didn't stand out so everything was just kind of yeah, you know sure. like you know black rubber so it didn't it didn't spoil the the effect at all and yes it made everybody feel a lot more comfy okay good that's just, just curious because it's, you know there are always balances to be struck Oh, yeah. And um, while it's, it's very easy to make um, a blow to the body relatively safe, a thrust mm-hmm. to the face is always going to be dangerous if you don't have oh, yeah, like definitely. really complete face protection. So yeah. and, I was just and, curious how you solved that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was our one concession and it worked out quite nicely. And um, frankly, those those two tournaments, and there was supposed to have, like there was initial talk about a third this past year, but a combination of <laughs> the, well, combination of this was even, even before the, the 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 pandemic struck. It was kind of struck in the books because uh, you know my family was added to by one, and at that point, uh, you know the possibility of me, uh, you know, swanning off no, to to to, to Aquitaine for a long weekend at this point, not really on the cards. No, um, no, 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 no. But my hope is. By the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. But um, I mean, everybody who's been involved with the with the project is still super keen. We all still stay in touch, so it's not impossible that it that once the dust settles, it will revive again. Um, so stay tuned. If that does happen, I'll make sure to kind of send the word out. Um, yeah, not just for people to come and see it, but if you actually wanted to challenge me, uh, you know, I'd be all for it. The more the merrier. Um, but How did the fights go. Sorry, but the the fights for me those were two weekends of school in the kind of hardest <laughs> sense of the word man oh man was it school uh i mean the, the first the first year really rammed home to me how rusty i was okay. because i mean i i made as good a showing as any but by and large it was very obvious that the guys from le Mani, uh were much more up with their practice than I was because for the most part, they wiped the floor with me. Um, Excellent. But, they, but we were all good sports about it. And it was, it was fantastic until by, you know, the first day uh, I was just beaten to a pulp by the second day. I had kind of, you know, learned a little bit and made a slightly better showing, but it gave me the inspiration of, I knew I was, I knew we were doing it again the following year. So I was like, right, I've got to get to work. So I spent the, the year kind of dusting, you know, uh, dusting everything off again. And then in 2019 made a much stronger showing where right? you know, I'm not going to toot my own horn. It was much more evenly matched. Uh, and I think the fights were much more engaging, but um, one interesting story about this was from the the, the, the first year uh, speaking of the kit requirements in the interest of safety it was a very very eye-opening lesson in exactly how effective even the minimal amount of armor that we were wearing actually was uh, in situations like these because uh, I was fighting uh, a friend of mine uh, on the, the first year, 
uh, I was over the moon that uh, a dear friend and one of my earliest teachers, uh, a chap called Stefan Pasker Schellenbein, um, who I met on the, the Ren Fair circuit and then gradually kind of started doing more historical stuff with in the US. He caught wind of uh, that I was doing this and was like, there is no way after all these years that you're going to do something this cool and I'm not going to be there. So we actually flew over from the US oh, wow. to take part and it was amazing. Um, but during our, during one of my bouts with him, now, uh, just for clarification for my, uh, my kit is kind of turn of the 14th to the early 15th century. So I've got a bassinet with an, with a padded aventail, uh, with mail uh, over it as well. So that and the high neck of my, uh, my jupon is basically it in terms of padding uh but there's you know the 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 padding of my aventail was pretty thick that combined with the high collar you had quite a number of of hefty layers of of quilted fabric and mail to get through before you actually hit my throat and there was a fairly big air buffer as well um and so during our one of our one of our bouts i uh i just completely took the bait uh from one of his guards walked forward and he just lowered his point and I basically lunged at speed straight onto his point right at my throat. Yeah. Okay. And again, you know, rebated tip with a rubber blunt on it, oh. but there was so still enough that. welly on that to kind of give me a nice little pop in the neck. Again, not to the point of it being painful, but I could tell how much force it was there and it could tell that if I hadn't had all those layers of protection, that would have been, that would have spoiled my day to say the least. Yeah. And that was extraordinarily eye-opening. that it's like, wow, that was a lot of force. I only felt that much of it through all of that. Um, obviously it probably would have been a very different story if we weren't dealing with blunts as well, but it was a really strong firsthand experience of just frankly, how much the kit actually works. I mean, we, you know, from a, from a modern standpoint, as we're practicing these things, we look at a lot of people looked at the kit requirements that I had and kind of shrieked with horror at how minimal it was. Um, because obviously we're, you know, we'd like to do this more than just one bout. So we want to make sure that we're all well protected enough to, you know, to, to, to live to fight another day, which is a perfectly sensible opinion to have. Um, but I, but I really wanted to, not just maintain the historical ambiance, but actually really put the kit to the test in a limited way to see how it actually performed, you know, in, in its natural environment and just kind of trust it to do the work. And that was a really, really nice illustration that um, left to its own devices, mumble, 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 mumble. This stuff actually does function quite well. Like, you know, padded armor, I think we underestimate how, effective it actually was in many circumstances even as a standalone with very little kind of supplementary stuff um so little things like that throughout the whole time doing the fights and just relying on more or less this period kit uh to protect me it was very eye-opening it made me a lot more kind of trusting of and appreciative of the original kit without all the modern bells and whistles for extra protection yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all because I've I've been relying on, um, well, particularly like for my hands, for instance, I've been relying on sort of fairly cheap 
steel gauntlets that, that happen to fit me very well and the fit yeah. is critically important um and yeah so all, all modern equipment i think the the main reason that there is so much emphasis placed on modern equipment is because it's much cheaper to make yes definitely. And so it's more affordable for the average enthusiast it's easier to, um, to to get into it more quickly rather than right. having to save your pennies for a harness yeah exactly uh, so I think I think a lot of it is money, yeah, um, definitely. which is reasonably understandable. But yes, I, I'm very much hoping that you will let us all know when the next one is, because I could I could stand to dust off my longsword skills myself, actually. Oh, marvelous! Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's a truly amazing place. Uh, yeah, I hope I get to to do it again back there. If not, I have been juggling around the possibility of basically taking the show on tour. Okay. It's like okay, I've done I've done two years in one you know in one spot that is very near and dear to my heart, and I'll go back there in a heartbeat. But um, I'd love if if time and logistics allowed to organize a kind of larger scale event where I actually make it kind of a traveling passage of arms, and I visit a handful of different sites and face people at different places and things, and make it a bigger That's event, a which I think would be really cool. Yeah, have um, a look at so, both Framlingham Castle and Orford Castle because they're both quite close to where I live, and they're both really good castles. Okay, sounds good. Okay, uh, but yeah. Um, so watch now, this space. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we're we're running a little close to time, um, so yeah. let me let me sort of wind things up with my standard kind of finishing questions. Um, the first of which is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Oh, gosh. Um, God, that's a hard question. I've <sighs> just really stopped and think about that. Well, because uh, you've acted on so much. I mean, you know, you did <laughs> The Deed of Arms twice. You've done the PhD. You have a book in discussions with publishers. I mean, it's it's I wouldn't I mean, some some people have answered this question with, well, I actually act on all the ideas that are any good, so I don't have any. And that's a perfectly legitimate answer. Well, I think um, the one thing that's still on my list that I haven't that I that I that I do want to do is, um, uh, in addition to the all of the uh, European martial arts stuff, I'm also a longtime practitioner of uh, Tai Chi, and um, my my teacher, who I met back in Boston, but still kind of occasionally train with and try to keep up with the lineage is um he's quite a remarkable guy he he basically dropped out of a kung fu movie he is an honest to goodness uh taoist priest who grew up and trained on wudang mountain and wow. then later and then later came to boston to kind of set up a taoist community and teach martial arts and and taoist arts um, and recently founded, I think, the first Taoist temple in the in in the U.S. up in the mountains in New Hampshire. Um, so he's uh, so I've been training with him in Tai Chi for a number of years now. And every couple of years, he leads a I think it's something like twenty day training pilgrimage back to Wudang, where he basically. Uh, traveling through several temples, living in the temples and training intensely with him and some of the other practitioners on the mountain, uh, uh, both oh, wow. with Tai Chi and also some of the other arts and sword and that sort of thing as well. Um, and 
I've never had the opportunity, like just because of resources and time, to to go on that trip. But damn it, I'm going to do it one of these days because every time I know someone that comes back from it, they say that it is absolutely extraordinary. So that's one of the things that I've never gotten the chance to do yet. But it's it's definitely on my list is to go just you disappear up in Wudong Mountain for for twenty days and uh, and and brush up on my my Tai Chi. Knowing, knowing what I know of parenting, you might have. 15 years or so to wait. Yeah, well, maybe he can come with me when the 20 grows yeah. up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so my last question. Um, somebody gives you a million pounds to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend the money? <sighs> okay, well, I think first things first, I would... I would set up, I would buy some incredibly beautiful, iconic looking piece of rundown medieval real estate and restore it and turn it into a, a center for uh, Western martial arts practice. Um, okay. So basically, I'll create a place that's uh, where everyone can come, where we can. There'll be schools, people can host workshops. We have as, and I, in addition to making it my home base where I would teach, I would also want it to kind of be the place where everyone comes to hang out, the, you know, the, the melting pot, where all the, mm. the, the masters and the nerds and everything from everywhere can come together, pool ideas, hang out, hit each other, compare notes. And from that, hopefully the art on the whole would, would benefit. Um, and also use that as a center for academic study as well. Use it to fund not only all the research that I want to get around to one day, but also uh, other people that wanted to create, uh, you know, had great ideas that they want to look into, you know, have an opportunity for them to, to, you know, to get funded, to go off and do these things. So basically a university of the sword. Ah, yes. Count me in. I'm coming. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just, yeah, medieval real estate, absolutely, but let's have some um, modern insulation and plumbing for the actual living quarters, eh? Yeah, yeah well, that, that's where, you know, I'll, I'll blow six figures of that uh, off of just making the place nice and livable. <laughs> I think you might need a bit more than a million pounds, but I think the money will be going into a very good direction. It's a start. It totally is. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today, James. It's been a delight. Oh, it's been it's been fantastic. Uh, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me, Guy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with James Hester. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes, which are particularly extensive for this episode because they include things like a PDF of the abstract for James's PhD. Lots of interesting material there. And of course, while you're on the website, you can also pick up a free copy of Sword Fighting for writers, game designers, and martial artists, if you so wish. Thanks as ever. Go to my wonderful patrons on patreon.com forward slash the sword guy, whose kind and generous contributions keep the microphones running. Patrons also get the opportunity to suggest questions for future guests. So yes, they get advance notice of the guest list. 
I also take their opinion very seriously about people to invite onto the show. And everything I produce goes to them first. So most recently, for example, a 10-page description of how I train teachers, which I'm working on as perhaps the abstract for a book that I'm possibly going to write. Well, they've already got it. So if that sounds like your sort of thing, you should join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Jessica Gomez, who is a Portuguese historical fencing instructor, and we discuss the trials and tribulations of setting up and running a club in Portugal. And she also brings up things like the traditional Portuguese stick fighting art, Yoga de Pau. Sorry if I'm mangling the pronunciation. Don't worry, her pronunciation is much better. You don't want to miss this, so... Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, if you have a moment, if you'd like to rate or even review the show, that would be extremely helpful. I will see you next week.